hear the Bibles coming out. It's music to my ears. As we turn now before the very Word of God, would you turn in your Bibles to the book of Hosea in chapter 5? We're still here uh, with the prophet Hosea. And before we read, would you please pray with me? Lord, we know that this is your word, and your word is living and active. Lord, we ask now by your spirit, would you pierce our hearts with these things, even to the dividing of soul and spirit, test our hearts that we would not be hidden. Help us as we hear to submit ourselves to you. Guide us now in your word, and we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, this is the book of Hosea in chapter 5. We'll take up uh, this morning the entirety of the chapter. It's just uh, 15 verses. I don't expect that we'll understand all of these, especially not on the first read, uh, but I do want us to hear the whole thing together so that we can get a good, a good sense of it. So this is Hosea in chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you. For you've been a snare at Mitzpah and a net spread upon Tabor, and the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me, for now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, for the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. With their flocks and herds they shall go to seek the Lord, but they won't find him. He's withdrawn from them. They've dealt faithlessly with the Lord. For they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah, sound the alarm at Beth-Avon. We follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment. Among the tribes of Israel, I make known what is sure. The priests of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to go after filth. But I am like a moth to Ephraim, and like dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness, and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king, but he's not able to cure you or heal your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah, I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place 
until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face, and in their distress earnestly seek me. This is the word of God. Now, I know, I know it can be tough to hear the words of Old Testament prophecy for several reasons. I mean, one, there's just a number of references here, people and places that are unfamiliar to us, so they're, they're easy to miss what's going on. The style sometimes can feel repetitive to a modern ear. It can feel like the prophets are saying the same things over and over and again. And, and even over all of this, to some people, we might hear this and think, wow, this is harsh. It just seems very heavy-handed. It's, it's disturbing, especially to know that these are not just the words of the prophet Hosea. These are the very words of, of God. We know that the main purpose in Hosea is to draw the people out of their sin and into God. And that's heavy lifting, But there are more things than just that going on here. There are more things going on than that here. And especially in all of the scriptures, I return to a single verse quite often, especially I've noticed since we've been in the book of Hosea. Uh, This verse in, in Romans chapter 15. Turn there if you've got your own Bibles. It's a single verse. This will help give light to us as we move forward. Romans chapter 15. Where is it? Verse... Verse 4, if you're reading in your own Bible and you're the kind of person that likes to scribble, this is a good verse to underline. Romans chapter 15, verse 4, listen here. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of of the scriptures, we might have hope. Did you catch that? The scriptures here, meaning all the writings, not just the the pleasant ones, the ones we like to highlight and underline, all the writings of scripture, their, their purpose is to instruct us, he says, and that's no surprise, there's instruction here, but that's also for endurance, for encouragement, and in the end, for hope. If you like to underline, circle that word hope. That's, that's, that's the main word here for, for the believer, for the one who trusts in God, who puts hope in Jesus. The outcome is hope. That's true of all texts in the Bible. That's even true of our text here in Hosea that begins with, listen up, the judgment's for you. You've been a snare. There's a net spread for you. My discipline is coming for you. Even hope is embedded within this. There's a trajectory toward that end. Now, the Lord does not just download hope into our hearts. You know, plug the little flash drive in and press a button and we have hope. Boop. His process is through instruction through an endurance journey. And so Hosea is going to move the Christian toward hope, but he's going to have to go through a process to get there. 
Let's look at what Hosea would have to teach us here to that end. We know by now one of the main themes in Hosea is that the Lord is accusing his people of what he calls whoredom. I don't like using that word. I don't use it often. It's not fun for me. I don't use it lightly. That's the word of the Lord. He calls his people whores in some sense because she, Israel, has been unfaithful and unloving to the Lord. And last week, we added from chapter 4 a third un, unfaithful, unloving, and now unknowing. And we talked about the sin of ignorance, that Israel has rejected her God. Today, now here, we're going to take a look at why all of this is the case. Why is Israel going through this whoredom? To do that, we're going to focus on two doctrines. The first is the doctrine of original sin. Two doctrines. We'll get to the second doctrine as as we come to it a bit later. But this first doctrine, the majority of our time will be spent with original sin. Now, there's a number of ways in which the scripture refers to this problem. Hosea, in this chapter, later on, verse 13, uh, calls this issue a wound, a sickness. And and he's not the only prophet to use that sort of sickness language. Isaiah says about uh, the people's rebellion, he says, Your whole head is sick. Your whole heart is faint from the sole of the foot to the top of the head. That's Isaiah. Jeremiah says about mankind, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can know it? And then Jesus in the New Testament, who's much more than just a prophet, says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So we're going to use that sickness metaphor in the rest of our time here. We're going to look at three aspects of original sin. First, the sickness. Second, the symptoms. And third, the the cure. As we look at original sin, the sickness, the symptoms, and the cure. That's our trajectory here. Let's look at the first. The sickness. What actually is original sin? Because Hosea doesn't use that phrase exactly, even though the idea here, what is original sin? What is this sickness? The key verse for us is in verse 4 of Hosea chapter 5, verse 4. Let me read it again. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, For the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. The sickness that Hosea is talking about here is not like a skin disease that's on the outside, a little bit of itchy, put a little lotion on it. This this is like a heart disease, a blood disease. It's on the inside. He says in this verse, the spirit of whoredom is where? Is within them. You notice then the main issue that he has here is not just their acts of whoredom. 
their deeds of whoredom. The Lord cares about that too, but here the issue is the, the spirit of whoredom, that it is part of who they are. This is their ingrained disposition. So some people might hear the phrase original sin. Maybe this is true for some of you. Hear the, hear the phrase original sin and think that maybe refers to the first sin, right? If we go back to Genesis uh, in the garden, we've got Adam and Eve. God says, don't eat the fruit. And they, they, they disobey God and they bite the fruit anyway. First, a sin of mankind, first expressed one. That's part of original sin, but just a small part. Original sin really refers to the way that Adam and Eve's first sin now impacts all of us under the fall. So we are now sinners from the start. Sinners from our very origin, even from our our very birth. So... David, you know, King David, guy famous for for getting Bathsheba pregnant out of wedlock. That wasn't his first sin. He did others before that. And he talks about this in Psalm uh, 51. But in this psalm, he says this, verse 5 of that psalm, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Did you catch that? In sin did my mother conceive me. That doesn't mean his mom sinned, that he was, I don't know, somehow born out of wedlock or or something like that. It's not talking about his mother's sin. It means in my conception, I was in sin. That I'm a sinner from conception. In other words, sin is part of the fabric of who I am. So we might describe original sin this way, that as part of the fall, we are sinful down to the very seed of ourselves. Let me say that again in case you missed it. As products now of the fall, we are sinful down to the very seed of ourselves. And this applies to every single person. I know that's not a very popular idea. You know, this is not something that many people like to believe. It's much easier, and many people prefer to think of ourselves more like a blank slate. Familiar with this idea? Yes? Blank slate is, you know, life is an empty canvas, and it is what you make it. You know, you you, you start off kind of in neutral. Uh, You've got your own free will that's totally uninhibited. And so if you do bad things, then you're a bad person. If you do good things, then you're a good person. But in the beginning, you start off just with nothing, blank slate. You know, some people, you know, you look around and you go, well, I see some people who are bad apples and some people who are good apples. And of course, I must be one of the good apples, right? Everyone always thinks that we're one of the good apples. We see bad apples and good apples. I'm one of the good apples. And if the bad apples and the good apples, if they both start from the same seed, then the seed can't be bad, can it? We have to be careful with this idea because it makes a lot of false assumptions. Let me try to illustrate this. When we watch a movie at our house, 
We've got two little, two little girls. Talking during movies is common, which is fine with me. I'm a movie talker too. If you're around me watching a movie, I just, I apologize. I like to discuss. And, and one of the most common questions that pops up as we're watching a movie from our, from our girls is this question. Is that a bad guy? You got little kids, you're watching little kid movies. Is that a bad guy? She, she's trying to figure it out and wants to be able to divide out the bad guys and the, and the good guys. And in some of the kids' movies, you can do that, you know? And usually you can tell who's bad and who's good, not just by what they do, but by how physically attractive they are. <laughs> so, so we've got, you know, someone who traps Rapunzel in a tower, and, and that person also just happens to be covered with warts and a hunchback and is just kind of all crone-looking. Uh, so we've got a, a, a wicked witch, and, and boy, she's the bad guy. And then there's someone who's going to come and rescue the princess from the tower. He's, of course, very handsome and muscular and has the perfect uh, jawline. And uh, this hero prince comes in, and, 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 and he's the good guy. Now, especially for kids, but also for all of us, it's good for us to be able to recognize the difference between good and bad actions. Between good and bad actions. The flaw, however, is by categorizing people into good and bad people based on a couple of things that they've done. Let's just be adults here for a moment. We do not live in a Disneyland fairy tale. Real life is a lot messier than princes and witches. And the princes and the witches are a lot more similar than we like to imagine. I mean, we see this all over the place when we come to the Bible. This isn't just Disneyland stuff. These are, these are historical people. But we're not given a bunch of hero princes with square-cut jaws that we're supposed to try to emulate. You know, what we see over the history of the scriptures, time after time after time after time, we see a bunch of complex, messy, sin-filled people who were all from the same seed. And if we're honest with ourselves, that's true of us too, yeah? I mean, as of me, don't you have moments where you feel like the hero prince? You know, it's a riding in on a white horse kind of moment, feel like a rescuer, feel good about something good I've done. And then maybe in the next moment, maybe the same day, there are other times where I am much closer to the wicked witch. that there's some sort of deep, ugly side that comes out. And it's hard to admit that, but we have to recognize that reality. I mean, at least in my experience, people who think that they're the hero of the story, people who think that they're, they're the good apple are usually some of the most insufferable people. People who think that they're the Cinderella are usually closer to the, you know, silly stepsisters. Usually they just show that they're living in some sort of fantasy world of their own making. 
It's the word of, 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 of John in 1 John. He says, if we, if we say we have no sin, not just we're lying, if we say we have no sin, he said, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We don't want to be like that. The blank slate framework does not explain the reality of sin that seems to be ingrained in us. But an original sin framework does. There is sickness in our nature. We are sinful down to the very seed of ourselves, whether we want to admit it or not. That's the sickness. Let's talk about the symptoms. Because sickness and symptoms are not the same thing. Okay? Symptoms aren't sickness. Symptoms come out of a sickness. So here, in Hosea, the symptoms are the, the actual sins that spring from original sin. These are the sorts of things that we do, either in our mind, in our heart, in our hands, things, sins that we commit, sins we do because we are sinners by nature. So in Hosea's words, just to put it bluntly, he says, you whore after other lovers because the spirit of whoredom is within you. You do this sin because you are a sinner. There's all sorts of symptoms or, or actual sins. They can be as dramatic as whoredom is, you know, dramatic things like sins of, of murder and sorcery and treachery and idolatry, but they can also be things that are much subtler, things like dishonoring of parents, laziness, lovelessness, bitterness. All of these things are actual sins, symptoms of the sickness of original sin. And it's important that we recognize that difference between original sin and actual sin. Because symptoms don't make us sick. They're, they're happening because we are sick. Here's why this matters. So we could think of the distinction this way. I'll use this because it's the best I could come up with, even though there's nothing necessarily morally wrong with eating meat, okay? But, but just bear with me. You'll get the point, okay? A lion eats meat because a lion is a carnivore. A lion eats meat because a lion is a carnivore. So what he does, the eating of the meat, comes from who he is, if that lion one day, for some reason, wanted to or was somehow able to quit eating meat, says, I'm going cold turkey, salads for me from now on, hold the chicken. If the lion could do that and wanted to do that, that lion would still be a carnivore. His teeth, his stomach, his musculature, everything about him would still say, even if I don't do the eating of meat, I am a meat eater. Which means changing of behavior does not change our nature. Did you hear me? Changing of behavior does not change our nature. That's what Hosea is getting after 
in our key verse, verse 4. Their deeds don't permit them to return to their God, for the spirit of whoredom is within them. In other words, even if we could fix all the things on the outside, that inner nature of original sin still remains. And that's what's keeping us from God. You know, many people, including me sometimes, if I'm honest, focus on the symptoms but forget about the sickness. You know, we think, if only I could do X, everything would be okay. You know, if only I could do this, God would be, would be pleased and I could return back to God. If only I could quit drinking. If only I, I could stop looking at pornography. If only I could figure out how to be more patient and less angry. If only I could serve the poor or the hungry. If only I could take my faith more seriously and read the Bible and, and pray and go to church and share my faith all the time. Whatever your if only is, then I will be good again. If I can deal with the symptom, then I don't have to worry about this, the sickness. But it's important. It is important for us to care about sin, of course, actual sins. These symptoms matter. Scripture is full of calls to us to put away actual sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. But if that's all we have, if all we have is just a bunch of deeds, that would be like power washing a tomb and leaving the stinking bones inside. In the end, we would still be sinners even if we could clean up all of our actual sin. And God would still pour out his wrath upon us like water. Nathan, I thought you said this was going to be about hope. We're to the third and final part. Cure. Is there any real cure? Spoiler. Yes. It's probably going to have something to do with Jesus. Thought you were guessing that. Okay, here's the cure. There's no shortage of home remedies. I could I think of tons, but just a few. Some people try to deal with this sickness and symptom issue with their own homebrew cure. You try to power through with the good deeds anyway. Even if you know it's not going to do a whole lot, you just try to do the good deeds anyway and, and, and just hope for the best. So here, Israel's you know, bringing their flocks and herds. They're going to offer a sacrifice to God. Uh, but that's not going to, the, the Lord says, you will not find me. So this is not going to cure it. Another, another homebrew cure people try to find, maybe society, some other place, someone who's got it together is going to fix it for me. In their context, they go over to, to Assyria. Maybe Assyria's got something that we don't have. Verse 13, he says, you go to Assyria, but he's not able to cure you or heal your wound. What's going on? This is not going to cure you. Or we could say, if you can't beat him, just join him. Maybe you know people like this. Instead of resisting the sin, it's not worth it. Just indulge in it. Eat, drink, tomorrow we die. That does not make it better. It only makes it worse. That's not a cure. And finally, I think this is the most common. Some people try to do this and say, I give up. This is 
hopeless. You're telling me by nature I'm a sinner and I do. What, it just toss up my hands. What am I supposed to do about this? And then we start accusing God about how unfair he is. You made me like this. You did these things to me. We can shout about this until we're blue in the face, but that won't cure it. Is there any cure at all that can deal not just with the symptoms, but also with the symptoms? Yes, but it's not a home remedy. The cure has to have the whole spirit of whoredom within us replaced. And that is something that only God himself can do. We heard these words earlier. It's a very succinct summary. We heard these words earlier in our service after the confession of sin because it's a good place to hear those words. I want to read them again because they're fitting here. Listen to what the Lord says to the prophet Ezekiel. This is in Ezekiel chapter 36. The Lord says this, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The cure here is not a little pill that he sets in front of us and says, take it every morning and evening. The cure here is something God does to us. God says, I'm taking out the spirit of whoredom and I'm replacing it with my spirit. Mine, my spirit will be within you. Jesus puts it this way very simply when he says, you must be born again. You know that line? You gotta be born again, he says. Can't see the kingdom unless you're born again. Sometimes we hear that phrase, born again Christian. You hear people talking about that, born again Christians. It's fine to say it, although it's redundant. Every Christian is born again. Every born-again person is a Christian. Those mean the same things. Every person who has faith in Jesus is a Christian and is born again, which means we are reborn of a different seed. We call this in fancy terms regeneration, to be generated again. That's the second doctrine. Remember I said we'd have two doctrines? We're almost done here. Don't worry. Second doctrine, if the first doctrine is the sickness of original sin, that is, we're descendants of the seed of Adam, the cure is this second doctrine of regeneration. That is, we are born again as descendants of the seed of Jesus. That means that Jesus himself is the cure here. He's the only good hero in this whole Bible story. Jesus is the gospel good news from God. Jesus is the hope, and he's a good hope here. If, if we took the whole Bible and clipped Jesus out of it, we would lose all the hope that the scripture has. Because what we'd be left with is a bunch of people who are wandering around still fatally sick and symptomatic trying to cure the disease of sin by putting on a bit of moral lotion. 
the real hope for us. A hope that we have as Christians and a hope that we now want to share with others who do not yet have this hope is that Jesus has come. And when he comes, he saves us from sin. Yes, he he receives the wrath of the Father upon himself in our place. Yes, but best of all, Jesus puts his spirit within us so that we don't have a spirit that's sick and dying. We have a spirit of God that is whole now and enables us to walk in paths of righteousness. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you. Thank you for doing these things that we cannot do for ourselves. We praise you for giving us new hearts, new new spirit. If there's anyone here that does not know Jesus or does not have this new heart, Lord, would you convict them of sin and draw them close to you that they would be reborn through faith in Jesus. And Lord, for the many of us who have been reborn already, help us to live according to that new birth, that we would put away actual sin and grow in our holiness, that your name would be praised and you would be honored every day of our lives. Lord, we ask that you would do this work in us by your spirit. And we pray these things in in Jesus' name. Amen.